And then before we begin today, I have to begin with a word of thanksgiving. Uh, I've been here now for about five years, and what started, for those of you who don't know, just as a three-month stay with the McManus family, uh, eventually turned into five years of adventure. Uh, So that's been a wonderful journey and experience, but as I stand here today and I look out into the room, I see many, many people who have loved me faithfully over the past years, many of whom have raised me up in the scriptures and have taught me the word of God, who have walked alongside me in the midst of joyful seasons and hard seasons, and uh, my heart is just overflowing with joy to be able to be here with you today. It's a real treasure, and I'm just thankful. Uh, You have all played a phenomenal role in my life and in my growth in the Lord, and it is a privilege to stand here before you today and to lead our time in the scripture. So with that being said, would you please bow your head with me in prayer? Gracious Father, Lord, we come before you and we thank you for this day. Lord, it is written that you require us to be thankful at all times because it's the will, uh, your will for us in Christ Jesus. And so we take a moment, Lord, to come away from the distractedness, from the busyness of life, to join together with our spiritual family, to quiet our hearts, and to meditate on you and to meditate on your son and his work on the cross. Lord, we offer up with thanksgiving and praise to you for all that you've done for us, for who you are, and all the wonderful things that we get to enjoy through our union with Christ, the greatest of which is eternal life and an eternity with you in a personal relationship, God. We pray now that as we open your word, as we spend time looking at the things which you have revealed to us, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. God, that as your word goes forth, that today we would not be primarily concerned with the thoughts and opinions of men, Lord, but rather what you have revealed, the things that you have provided in your word, the sufficiency of which goes forth and shepherds your people as the Spirit uses it to work in our hearts and to raise us up to be more like Christ. God, we're thankful for this time. I pray that you would be with me, Lord, that I would speak things that are true and that exalt Christ. Because that is why the church exists, to exalt Christ in this life before we are gloriously joined with him in eternity to exalt him forevermore. And that is the great truth and hope of the gospel, Lord. We thank you for this time, and we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you knew me well, and some of you do, hopefully you would be able to say that my favorite day of the whole year is Easter Sunday. I think it is just the best Sunday of the year. And I know that the truth is that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But there's something about Easter, the coming together as a body to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that makes me especially excited and joyful. And while I have many fond traditions over the years of my life, celebrating Easter with my family and reading the gospel account, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate. One of the greatest traditions that we've had in our family is that every year my mother purchased for all the boys in the house, there are a lot of them, I have three brothers and a father and a male dog, so the whole house is male. Uh, And every year my mother will buy all of us an Easter shirt or an Easter polo so that we'll look our best on Easter Sunday. And it's something that we all look forward to as the time 
comes around during the year, we all scramble into our closets and try to see what we got the previous years and make sure that we're not repeating colors or styles or those kinds of things. And thankfully, my mother was able to make it. She was able to clear room in her very busy schedule to be here today. And we were able to purchase my shirt yesterday. And if you're wondering, what did he choose? Well, it's like your typical two-part sermon. You're going to have to come back next week because today, of course, is not Easter. Today is Palm Sunday. And so today we get to talk a little bit about what Palm Sunday is. The original Palm Sunday, about more than, a little more than 2,000 years ago, was a crucial day in the life of Christ as he prepared to fulfill his purpose on earth, the purpose and the reason that he came. The culmination of his ministry and his life was coming into focus. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He led the disciples there. And as he entered Jerusalem, he was received with great celebration. As he entered the city, people were laying down their coats and palm branches, and they were proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And they were all excited and celebrating, for in their mind the Messiah had come, and with it, he was going to set things straight. As the true king of Israel, he was going to overthrow Roman oppression, as well as Roman occupation of the land that God had promised to them. And the coming of the Messiah also meant that the kingdom of God was now inaugurated, and with it were coming all of the covenant promises and restoration that they had longed for centuries to experience. But if you read the gospel accounts, you know that the week didn't exactly go as they had hoped. Easter Sunday is a remarkable day when we all join together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate his victory over death, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, while it's important to study and to celebrate and to meditate on the victory of Christ, we cannot do so apart from considering the significance of all of the trials that he underwent on the days leading up to Easter. Because between Palm Sunday and Easter, Christ would be rejected by his people. He would be betrayed by one of his disciples. He would be denied by one of his closest friends. All those who were with him scattered and they were deserting him. He was beaten almost to death, he was spat on, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was blasphemed, he was falsely sentenced as a criminal to death, and then he was forced to carry a cross on his back outside the city, be crucified on that cross, bear the wrath of Almighty God for sins that he did not commit, and ultimately die. It's safe to say that no one in the history of the world has experienced a week of trials like Christ did to secure our eternal inheritance. And so when we consider the magnitude of what Christ willingly allowed to happen to himself, it is natural for our hearts and even good for our hearts to examine the question, why did he do it? What motivated the heart of our Savior to go through those horrific things? And thankfully, Scripture gives an answer. It is not silent and it speaks loudly to all who will hear it. And one of the reasons is found in the book of Hebrews when it says that Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. With each trial that came, it was the supernatural joy of fulfilling the will of the Father who sent him and his commitment as the author and founder of our faith that motivated him to purchase our redemption with his precious blood. And so today, on Palm Sunday, as all of us as a group prepare this coming week in in anticipation to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, it is fitting that as we do so, we must examine what Scripture has to say about having joy in the midst of trials. And that's what we're going to do today. So would you please open with me in your Scripture to James chapter 1. And as you're turning there, we learn from the James's greeting in verse 1 that he's writing to Jewish believers who no doubt are wrestling and suffering and facing a number of trials. Whether by persecution or other providential means, they have been scattered throughout the greater Middle East and potentially are living somewhere that is not their home. And if you've ever had to be relocated or temporarily moved from somewhere where you're living, you know that after a while that produces challenges and trials, and it can be uncomfortable. And so James, being led by the Holy Spirit, writes to provide them with encouragement and instruction on how to live for Christ, not just in the midst of their trials, but in every area of life. And because God's word is living and active, we too have to examine the things that James has to say so that we might live fruitful lives for Christ in our daily present circumstances as well. And that begins here in the epistle of James with a view of trials. And so that's where we're going to start, and we're going to look in verse uh, 2 to begin. So read along with me. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. My first point today, if you're keeping notes, is rejoice in the process. James is instructing us to rejoice in the process, and he does so by giving us a command. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And all of us know from personal experience that it's a little more difficult to put this command into practice than it is just to hear it. It's difficult, and that's because trials are hard. They bring about challenges, they bring about discomfort, they bring about pain, they can bring about suffering. And if that weren't enough, it seems as though there are a limitless variety of trials. They come in a variety of ways, sometimes from a variety of people, in a variety of circumstances, and so on. And we don't have time today to take a big overview of all of the different types of categories of trials that exist that we can go through in this life. But if you have an opportunity, uh, Cliff has done an excellent job writing a book called A Biblical View of Trials off a couple of sermons that he preached and some of his thoughts on that. And I believe this is available out in the lobby. If not, you can let one of the pastors know and we can get you a copy of this. Uh, But Cliff does a beautiful job of sort of categorizing the various types of trials that you can be going through. So if you're, you feel like you're having trouble diagnosing what kind of trial you're in, this would be a very helpful resource, and I would commend it to you. 
And so there are a variety of trials in this life, and James tells us that it's not a matter of when or, or if we will go through them, but rather a matter of when. They are coming, and we need to be prepared. And so what are we to do when trials come? How are we actually supposed to have joy in the midst of our trials? And I think James is arguing here that in order to cultivate joy in our trials, there is something specific that we must know about trials in order to fulfill this command and to have joy in our trials. It's built upon a foundational knowledge. Look at the passage with me again here in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James tells us that the ability to have joy in our trials is the direct result of understanding the purpose that trials play in our lives. And the purpose is this, that God sovereignly ordains trials in order to make his people more like Christ. Trials are one of the means that God provides to complete that good work of salvation that he began the moment we were saved. And intellectually, we know this to be true, and yet many of us still struggle or are currently still struggling to find joy in the midst of a specific trial that we're going through, and maybe even a wide variety of trials. There may be more than one going on. And I think James anticipates that, which is why he gives us another command that's going to be helpful implementing joy in the midst of our trials, and that is this. In order to have joy, we are called to let endurance have its result. Go ahead and look here again in verse 5. It says, or verse 4, sorry. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. And we need this command because realistically, if all of us were being honest, none of us enjoy trials. If we were honest, the majority of times, we're just looking for a way out. We want our trial to stop. We want to be rid of it as soon as possible. We want the pain to end. We want the suffering to go away. And all of us can relate to experiences like that. And yet, Scripture teaches us clearly that the only way out of a trial is to go through it. And so the main point of James' opening argument is this, that a desire for Christ-likeness produces joy in the midst of trials. Because if there is anything that you desire in your life more than Christ-likeness, you will be practically unable to fulfill this command and have true joy in your trials. And you might think, but I want it to stop. But I want out. But I want a different life. I want a different lot. I want different circumstances. And I would say that those thoughts are actually only able to produce discontentment and not joy. But if what you desire most in this life is Christ-likeness, you will be able to have joy when God brings about trials in your life. And I have one more quick thought here before we go on to our second point, and that is this. This is very important. This is very crucial. The source of our joy is not found in the trials that we experience. Let me say that again. The source of our joy is not found in the trials that we experience. James does not say that we're called to have joy in our trials, but rather we are called to have joy when trials come. Because the reality is we don't find joy in disease. 
in divorce, in death, in persecution, and in other, all the other effects that come with living in a broken world. But rather, the source of our joy is found in God himself and the knowledge that when we encounter these trials, God sovereignly uses them to conform us to the image of our blessed Savior. And so the command here is to let endurance have its perfect effect because we long to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And that's our goal. And realistically, we know that that goal is not attainable here in this life. We have to wait until we're glorified and like Christ to be perfect and lacking and nothing. So then the question is, since we are lacking, what are we called to do until then? How are we to conduct ourselves longing to be perfect and lacking in nothing? Well, that brings us to our second point. Go ahead and look at verse 5 with me. Point number two is ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Let's read along in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James understands that all of us lack wisdom, and so he gives us another command, and that is ask God for wisdom. And what a comfort to know that the same God who is active in ordaining our trials is the same God who is the source of all wisdom. And as the one who ordains trials, God understands that we need wisdom in order to be successful in them, and he desires to give us that wisdom generously and without reproach, because ultimately God's goal is to refine us and not to destroy us. Sometimes when we're in the midst of trials, it seems as though God is trying to destroy us. We can have a wrong perspective of what's going on because of the pain or the suffering that we feel. And so it's encouraging to remember that God's goal in ordaining trials for our life is to make us more like Christ and to refine us. And this is the promise of 1 Corinthians 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, when it says, No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In this context, you could say an aspect of escaping would be the wisdom necessary to know how to escape. And so therefore, we have to ask God for wisdom, not only in order to endure the trials that we're in, but also to be successful in them. Now, when we ask God for wisdom, if we're going to actively implement that in our lives and be faithful to what James is telling us to do, there are a couple of things that we need to know about asking God for wisdom that we have to get right if we're going to implement this command in the right way. The first is that asking God for wisdom is not a mystical experience. Let me say that again. Asking God for wisdom is not a mystical experience because God has provided us the means necessary to obtain wisdom. We have his living word, which is our ultimate authority and our ultimate source for wisdom. 
We are able to seek God in prayer and ask him to work in our lives according to his will. We possess the indwelling Holy Spirit that helps us to walk in obedience to what God has commanded in Scripture. And not only that, we also have the blessing of a wise multitude of counselors that help us apply the principles of Scripture to our lives and in the midst of our circumstances and our trials. We cannot approach asking God for wisdom as if it is a mystical experience that goes beyond the things that are already revealed. And Hebrews 1 tells us this. It says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so seeking wisdom from God is not looking for a sign because Jesus said that a perverse and wicked generation seeks after a sign. It is not hearing the audible voice of God. God has spoken in scripture and in it he has given us everything that we need for a life of godliness. It is also not having a dream because you are not alert or sober-minded when you are sleeping or anything else that goes outside the the bounds of Scripture. And so that's the first way. We cannot approach asking God for wisdom as if it is a mystical experience. Number two, if we expect to receive wisdom from God, we must ask in faith. Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I love the way that Cliff has summarized it from the pulpit, a great summary of what biblical faith is. He says that faith is the ability to take God at his word. That faith is the ability to take God at his word. And so, what does it mean to ask God in faith in order that we might receive the wisdom we need? Asking in faith means that we ask according to the will of God. Because Jesus promises that if we ask anything in his name, or you could say according to his will, that he will do it. And so, To seek wisdom from God means that we do so according to his will with the faith that he will give us the answer that he desires us to have according to his good purposes and pleasure. That's the second thing. We have to ask God in faith. And then the third thing is we must not doubt or be double-minded. James says that the one doubting is like the wave of the sea. He is tossed and turned by the wind and that that man cannot expect to receive anything from God. And so today, maybe you are struggling with doubt. For whatever reason, you are struggling to ask God for wisdom in faith. And my exhortation and encouragement to you would be to take courage because God cares for you. In fact, he calls you to cast your anxieties and your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so ask God to strengthen your faith, read his word daily, surround yourself with brothers and sisters who can provide you encouragement and counsel that you need. Because you can trust God to use the means that he has given the church to strengthen his people in Christ. Or maybe you are not struggling with doubt today. In fact, maybe you're very confident that God will give you the wisdom that you need, and yet For some reason, whatever it may be, you still don't seem to be getting an answer. What should we do then? Well, Scripture affirms that there are definitely seasons that require patience and waiting on the Lord. Scripture is filled with examples of godly men and women 
who had to wait on God for many, many years to provide the things that either he said he would or, or deliverance from their trials. But I would say that if you're seeking God for wisdom and that you are not getting the answer that you are looking for, you, you, maybe you're, you're not receiving an answer, you feel like the, like the heavens are brass, it's just kind of bouncing off and maybe you're not being heard. I would encourage you that it might actually be a great opportunity to reassess your life, uh, your life, reassess your trial, reassess your circumstance, and make sure that you are not being double-minded in your approach to the issue. Because here in the passage, doubting is synonymous with being double-minded. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does being double-minded look like practically? What does that look like practically? And I would say that someone who is double-minded is someone who is stuck between their own will and the will of the Lord. I have to confess that over the course of my life, I personally have struggled through many seasons of double-mindedness. And in some of those seasons, I even had all of the right spiritual boxes checked when I assessed my situation. I was asking the Lord for wisdom in prayer. I was reading God's word and seeking wisdom there. I was asking a multitude of counselors about my situation, and I was also being faithful in the midst of the responsibilities that God had entrusted to me. And yet, upon real, honest self-examination, deep down, I had already decided what the best solution to my problem was, or what the best way out of my trial was, and realistically, I was just asking God to give me what I wanted. And this is where self-examination becomes so crucial in the lives of a believer. Here's a sample scenario to just tease this out a little bit. The thought process looks a little bit like this. I am in a trial. I have been in this trial for a long time. I want to be out of this trial. I'm not receiving the wisdom from God that I need to get out of this trial. And yet, potentially on the outside, it might look something like this. A multitude of counselors have been giving me the same counsel throughout the duration of this trial. The principles of Scripture are speaking clearly about what the trial has to say. And so a possible diagnosis is this. Potentially, I am not listening because I have already determined what I want. And I am just waiting for God to reveal the answer or the scenario that I have already determined is best in my own wisdom. I promise you this, that type of thinking will eventually make a person unstable in all of their ways. And not only that, that that person cannot expect to receive anything from the Lord as long as that process and that thought and that attitude continues. If you can relate to that scenario at all, I would just encourage you, it's not too late. Pray and ask God to give you the strength to lay down your will and to submit to his will at the same time. And that brings us to point number three. If we're going to have joy in the midst of our trials, if we are going to cultivate joy practically, realistically, we need to maintain perspective. We need to maintain perspective. 
And while on the topic of trials, James gives them two practical examples of what it looks like to maintain perspective in the midst of trials. Go ahead and follow along with me as we read in verse 9. It says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And so it's super practical, it's super helpful. James gives us just a a couple of things of what it looks like to maintain perspective in the midst of trials. And the first is the example of the poor man. Instead of focusing on his trial of poverty, which can be a real trial, rather, he is to boast in his exaltation. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the reality is his poverty may never change. And that's one of the things that goes so against the prosperity gospel that is so common in modern Christianity. The reality is his his poverty may never change because Jesus said the poor you will always have with you. But even though his poverty may never change, knowing that he will inherit the kingdom of heaven as the result of his right relationship and standing before Christ and with Christ, he can have joy in the midst of his poverty. The second example is that of the rich man. Instead of focusing on the pursuit of riches, which we know from Scripture can cause all sorts of trials, 1 Timothy 6 is a great example, the rich man rather is to boast in his humiliation, knowing that he too will ultimately pass away like the flower of the grass. And so with this perspective, a rich man will have joy boasting in the poorness of his spirit, knowing that he has great treasure laid up for himself in heaven upon his death. Paul is a wonderful, great model of what it looks like to have joy in both of these circumstances. Uh, We read this in Philippians chapter 4 when he writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With the right perspective, we're ready to go to our final point. And that is this, persevere in your trials. Or just simply persevere. Go ahead and read again with me verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The outcome of perseverance through trials in this life for the believer is the crown of life. Having been conformed into the image of Christ, believers will receive from him this great reward. And while this is an amazing promise, one that helps us to run the race, one that we set our hopes on and we set our our joy and our hope in fulfilling and finishing the race and the work that Christ has called us to do, this promise is conditional. It's conditional. 
And it is conditional on the faith or on faith in the event that took place 2,000 years ago on Holy Week. And that is this, that the God of the universe, the creator, sent his only son to earth to live a perfect life without sin, to die on the cross as a substitution for sinners, and to raise him from the dead, defeating death and and securing an eternal inheritance for those who believe in him. And that is what we would refer to as the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news to exist in the history of the world. And so the promise is this. For those who love God, they will receive the crown of life as they persevere to the end. And so if you, have a perp- if you have a personal relationship with Christ, as you prepare for Easter Sunday next week and consider all of the trials that Christ went through, as you look to your Savior, follow in his example by desiring the will of God and your Christ-likeness more than your desire to resist the temporary pain and suffering and discomfort that is being brought upon you currently in the midst of whatever trial or circumstance you might be in. And if you do that, you will be able to have unshakable, lasting, fulfilling joy. If you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, the Bible declares that today is the day of salvation. I plead with you, turn from your sinful ways, from your sins. Believe on Christ, submit to him as the one possessing all authority, and you too shall receive the crown of life. Because the truth is this, apart from Christ, you can have no true joy in your trials. For what does it prosper a man or a woman to endure and to suffer through the trials of this life, the effects of a broken world, when ultimately... He, must, he or she must forfeit their soul upon death. And so the exhortation from Scripture is this. Turn to Christ, the author and perfecter of true salvation, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God and who will return in glory to judge every man according to their deeds. In conclusion, trials are inevitable. We know that. We live them. You may be even in the midst of one right now. But the scripture exhorts us that a desire for Christ-likeness above all else will enable you to have joy as you go through them, knowing that you are being made more like your blessed Savior. Therefore, rejoice in the process, and let your, trial, let your endurance have its perfect result in your trials. Ask God in faith in the areas that you're lacking for the wisdom that you need to be successful. Maintain perspective in the midst of your trial as it is informed by scripture and the principles therein. And persevere with a fervent love for Christ that you might receive the crown of 
of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you with open hands and with humble hearts. Lord, as you look down, you recognize that all of us, at one time or another, have resisted, have pushed back, have kicked, have fought against the trials that we experience in this life, Lord. And we just, we confess that far too often we desire our own comfort, we desire our own uh, just whatever we desire, Lord. We just, we, we desire to be out of a trial, whatever it may be. And we lose sight of the fact that you are graciously and lovingly making us more like Christ through the trials that you have ordained for us. Lord, we know that those who persevere to the end will be saved and that there is a crown of life awaiting them. God, and practically we can't do this in our own strength. We need your help. God, and so this week as we approach the cross, as we set our sights on the Savior and the great hope that awaits us, I pray that you would encourage our hearts to keep our perspective in the midst of the trials that we are facing. Lord, that you would strengthen your people to live in a way that is honoring to you, and that as we do so, Lord, that you would be cultivating within us an unshakable, rich, fulfilling, lasting joy that will carry on into eternity. Lord, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. And as the, elder, or as the uh, ushers come forward, I'd like to invite up uh, Dr. Derek Brown to lead us in a time of communion.